So hi everyone and welcome to Architecture in the Den with me, your host Lisa Rains from Pride Road, the Architectural Practice Franchise. And today I'm delighted to welcome Gregory Cowan. So um, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello Lisa, hello everyone. My name is Gregory Cowan. I'm an Australian born and trained architect and I moved to the UK 17 years ago, um, plus a few days. And I've been here working um, in London for most of that 17 years, uh, with a year abroad, nearly two years abroad in Mongolia, but I've also been working in some other European countries. And um, I've recently retrained um, as a coach, as a life coach, and I've um, started a new enterprise as the architect's coach. Awesome. So, um, and we've, <laughs> we have regular chats, uh, Gregory and I. Um, we are co-hosts on Clubhouse on a Monday morning. Um, the room is constructive together. It's um, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. On a, on a Monday morning, bright and early before kind of the work week starts. And it's a really nice gathering of people, quite a few architects in the group. <laughs> um, but um, a, a, a topic that comes up every now and again is the difference between coaching and mentoring. Yes, <laughs> Put you on the spot there, Greg. Um, That's a great topic. Yeah, I wonder if you can just elaborate. I mean, um, oh, I keep on getting told off because I keep on getting <laughs> forgetting to plug Pride Road, <laughs> the architectural practice <laughs> franchise. And in Pride Road, we we provide both coaching and mentoring. So I provide the mentoring, and and um, the franchisees. Uh, mentor each other but in addition to that we do have um, a coach that we use and they are two very different things uh, and often there is quite a bit of confusion between the two um, but Greg would you like to clarify? Sure sure yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to so I actually come to coaching from mentoring and yeah. I've been mentoring for some time I actually I, I realized recently I was mentored when I was a university student mm -hmm. and I was mentored by um, a senior practitioner in architecture in Perth in Australia where I trained and um, I didn't really understand much about mentoring at that point um, but I got a sense it was to do with asking a more mature and experienced colleague for advice and I don't think I was very challenging in my questions, but I went along with the scheme that was run by my local architecture association. It was the West Australian chapter of the, what was then the Royal Australian Institute of Architects. It's now called the Australian Institute of Architects. <laughs> and um, I, I, I would ask him about, you know, the prosaic nature of, of running an architect's practice and um, about, you know, what it's like to work as an architect. And then fast forward to more recently, I was involved in a project called Fluid uh, Diversity Mentoring at the RIBA. I was working at the RIBA and I got involved in Architects for Change, which was a campaign um, group 
which wanted to try to make the architecture profession in the UK more reflective of the diversity of the society that we live in, rather than looking predominantly male and white and senior. And um, I was very interested in that uh, campaign and I started mentoring with Fluid, uh, with someone called Dana Walker. And I, um, I got some great experience there and, and found some things were very different to what I remembered from my early experience of mentoring as a mentee. Um, and I, I guess I did have that experience that it was a younger person looking for guidance from a more experienced person or from someone with more power than them, perhaps. Uh, and then I realized from that experience that it doesn't have to be that way. It could be reversed, that, that somebody could ask for advice from a more experienced person without being in a program. And also that there could be some mutual exchange, which kind of leads on to what coaching is, because that, that's where um, I, I was actually discussing this with a, a coaching colleague last night, is that it's about the sort of equivalent exchange between peers. Uh, coaching is, is more of a flat method where um, you're both human and you both try to solve things together more so than one having the answer from their experience and the kind of expertise if you like mm -hmm. so although there are coaching methods and i guess that involves expertise sort of psychological methods to unravel problems uh, coaching broadly is more of an equal exchange than a and asking for advice from a more trusted uh, and, and um, experienced mentor. I mean, the mentor word comes from the kind of Western tradition of a sort of a more trusted senior colleague. And the coaching word comes more from, from sports, I suppose, where somebody stands beside the track and, and shouts out to the athlete to, to go faster, but also they're there for the long term and they help them to... Um, achieve the goals that they want to achieve without the coach necessarily being capable of the same speeds that the athlete is is capable mm. thank you very much yes and um, i've sort of been sort of party to coaching i think since i set up my business originally back in 2010 before that yeah i'd always reached out for mentors um and like you say it can be really intimidating um and you know sometimes it's not necessarily you you haven't necessarily got the appropriate questions to ask or they're not they're not quite appropriate whereas a coach as you say is kind of more of a personal internal kind of an investigation and um yeah certainly in 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 the business realm um so coaching has been really really good for me and and i've been you know on the riba mentor program and i've sort of had a a, a few uh riba sort of students myself over the last um few years and you know that's that is enjoyable and just trying to help but it's quite specific when <laughs> quite specific questions like how do i do my cv and you know can you have a look and can you have a look at my portfolio and you know lots of Oh, can you tell me who your contacts are? Can I have a job, please? <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, I've had that too with, um, even with non-architect um, coaching clients where they are going through a career change and they would also like to get some contacts and maybe um, get into your LinkedIn and see if there's someone in there that could be valuable for them. Uh, so I think, I think there are some things that are applicable beyond architecture there that mm. um, they're to do with, um, you know, CV writing and so on. I, I do quite a lot of that. Um, and I think that goes, although it's useful to have someone who's done an architecture CV, it is also something that is broadly applicable and you can have almost anyone with some experience looking at your CV and saying, well, this stands out to me and this doesn't stand out as much. Mm-hmm. So um, just going back to your journey, so what brought you um, to the UK? Ah, right. Well, I actually, <laughs> I um, had been at the end of a 10-year period of um, working as an academic. Mm. I'd been teaching in a university in Western Australia uh, during the uh, 1990s. And um, it had been quite an intense period where I first had gotten involved from being an architect to getting into academia, but not being a qualified academic. I was more qualified as an architect than I was as an academic. Mm. I had been working in Austria and um, my university in Western Australia sort of snapped me up and said, we want to know all, all about Austria and can you share with us all your wonderful transparencies of what you did in, in Austria and tell us more about the scene in Europe and Britain and Germany and so on. And uh, of course, I jumped at the opportunity, but then after 10 years working in that university, and also working in a twinning program between Perth and Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, I was somewhat um, exhausted and wrung out by the experience. And also I had not become qualified as an academic. I was still um, finishing my master's because at that time um, I had my part two qualification. And so I was fully qualified in Australia uh, this was before the masters became part of the part two qualification mm. um, and then i went on to do a masters by research as a as an academic qualification rather than as a professional one mm. and then um, at that time i realized i would like to go and get some wider experience outside um, australia as i'd been sort of um, dining out on my Austrian experience for the last several years, it was time to get some more international experience. And then you moved across? Uh, yeah, I moved to, to London and yeah. um, I quickly uh, found myself, um, I had a little desk at the Institute for Australian Studies, the Menzies Centre in Russell Square, which was yeah. very nice that the that the then part of the University of London gave me a little desk where I could study Australian studies or write about Australian studies because yeah. I had one publication related to Australian um, Aboriginal culture and architecture. Yeah. And um, I then worked in the UK. I worked at Kingston University and I worked in a bookshop and some other things uh, before I eventually came to Reba and got interested in international development. And so then, when you first came over to the UK, did you have anything set up when you moved across? Or? 
Um, I had one colleague, the one who I worked with at Kingston University, who I'd met at a series of conferences in, um, in Asia and in Australia. Yeah. Uh, that's Sarah Chaplin, uh, now Professor Sarah Chaplin, who became the head of a school in Kingston University. And so I, I went and knocked on her door in whatever way you do that in those days. It probably was literally a phone call rather than an a email. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I found a way to get going with the Kingston University. Um, but all the time I was thinking I wanted to do further study mm. and um, I couldn't afford it because I, I wanted to study at the Berlache in um, in Rotterdam mm. and then, or the Hague I think it was at that time, and then I couldn't afford the fees. So mm. I was kind of saving up for that. Then I got a place at the London Consortium, which was a, a new university that had been formed out of the Tate the AA and one other university and again I couldn't afford the fees so I kept putting off the enrollment until I could afford the fees and eventually I I had to give it up the place right okay. I mean, it, it, it's um after university no for me after I'd done my part threes um I went over to New York and I just and I remember at the time trying to get a job uh, from the UK over in New York. So this was, it was bought before Twin Towers came down. It was, um, was it 2000? No, before then, um, about 98, 99. And um, there was, emails weren't really a thing back then. I think they started to become a thing whilst I was there, but yeah, I think everyone was, everything was done by fax. Do you remember faxes? I, I do. And I, I even remember I'm um, doing a, a project. I think that was when I was still in Austria. I did a project with a friend in Australia where we would send each other long drawings that were two or three metres long by fax. And uh, I found that very exciting. To, did you have to, to piece them together fax. side by side? <laughs> <laughs> no, that because at that time you could get a roll of, of hydrostatic paper, whatever you call it, electrostatic paper, which was attached to the fax machine and would just make a lorry drawing as long as you needed. So I love that. <laughs> it was such a David Hockney did. I remember he did fax drawings as well. That's right. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. That's great uh, fun. If anyone's listening and doesn't know what a fax machine is, go and have a quick Google. <laughs> I've got a little um, sketchbook of my drawings from that project called Companion City. Yeah. And I would love to um, resurrect that and maybe publish it sometime. It'd be <laughs> maybe quite nostalgic. It was about um, living in Europe versus living in Australia or something like that. Mm. Oh, faxes were such fun. Apart from when you're trying to send AIs and drawings and stuff over to... Uh, contractors <laughs> but, it, but it's yeah it's amazing that would have been around the turn of the century like you say around the end of the 90s yeah that email started to come in so i think by the time i came to the uk in 2003 i probably could have sent an email to sarah chaplin but i i might have actually phoned her and arranged to meet her in person because that was 
you know, part of the point of coming over to Yeah, we didn't really rely, we, you couldn't really trust emails. No, that's right. So I, I don't I mean, think you knew whether things had been received or, uh, or sent or got to the right person. And, and, and the key thing was that email was all um, desktop based, it wasn't mobile. So you would have had to go home to check your email on yeah. your um, desktop rather than just refer to it on your phone because yeah. of course smart smartphones were a long way away at that time <laughs> um, but but i did remember that one other um, historical event that was of interest to me in 2003 at the beginning of 2003 there was a big protest in perth about the um, invasion of iraq mm. and australia and and um, america had been well, let's say Australia had been drawn into this, Australian troops had been drawn into this with America and Britain as part of a sort of a coalition. And I was very unhappy about that at the time. Mm. Um, I think it was Tony Blair was involved. Um, so when I came over to the UK, I was also involved in some protests about the uh, invasion of Iraq. Mm. And um, I felt that I was coming to a place where my voice might be heard a bit better than it was in Perth. That's interesting. So there was some sort of, I guess I had relented to the idea that London was somehow the centre of the world, which an idea that I always hated as I grew up thinking that people in London were so arrogant to think that they were in the centre of the world. Mm. But, I did, but I did like going to Parliament Square and, and making a protest there as though my voice might uh, matter. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting one. Is London the centre of the world? <laughs> I, I say that with quite a sort of um, a wry kind of post-colonial um, sort of glint in my eye, knowing that um, I think we we kind of challenged that, that view. And I think most um, Londoners are too polite to say that they think that is the case anyway. Mm. Um, maybe people in Manchester would say it more willingly than people in London. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, um, kind of running uh, Pride Road as a national business, um, you, you know, trying to get from one end of the country to the other, oftentimes you have to go through London. So London becomes a hub, um, you know, even if you're going far, Photography is rubbish. Far west, you often go into London to go back out again. And uh, I'm looking at a map sort of on my side. So, you know, I've kind of got my franchise locations kind of dotted around. So we've got some franchises there, 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 and there. And, you know, off, I think London's just going to naturally become our hub sort of rather than, than Manchester because it, it, it'll take the same amount of time for everyone to get down irrespective of where we are. So It's nice to see the map with the, with the kind of red, uh, the kind of uh, concentric centering on the middle of the continent of, of um, the British Isles. Mm. Uh, rather than down in the bottom corner, which uh, most maps tend to emphasise London down there on the Thames as being the centre, where your map, even from a distance, it really yeah. looks like Manchester is the centre. 
I, I do appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've we've got our two franchisees up here, you see. So, but then then there's like a, an excerpt of London. So that's that's London. You can see where where we are at the moment. But it's exciting. I love this kind of swathe that we've got going on. So I've split the the uh, country into 155 territories and we've got some territories over in Northern Ireland, Scotland, coming Wales, South Wales rather than North Wales. Well, no, we, we have um, available and then quite a lot of rest and would you say, Lisa, that 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 um, this the, that distribution of territories that you mentioned are those do those follow sort of um, sort of residential settlement rather than just population distribution? Is it to do with the kind of it's maybe suburban both. residential? Yeah, it's both. Basically, each territory is. Um, each territory, 70,000 owner-occupier homes within like a 20-minute, 30-minute travel distance. So there's a geography exercise as well as a, a population and density. So you can see kind of in North Wales, the grey areas don't stack up. I don't really, you probably can't see that well, but the grey areas don't stack up. So North Wales don't. Uh, these big white swathes don't stack up either. They're too too rural. Um, yeah. So in 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 Northern Ireland, we've got one, two, three, four territories. Um, but then, if you're going up to London, Derry, that doesn't stack up. Um, sort of like around Newcastle, there's quite a few, but then just slightly north of that, you can't, it doesn't. Um, yeah, I, I, I um, it was an exercise I went through, like, um, sort of quite the, the early days of the franchise when I was trying to work out sort of what how big a territory should be for a franchise. Um, and I kind of went through a franchise mapping uh, service. Um, they're called Atlas. Uh, and it was just fascinating. Cost a flipping fortune to do it. <laughs> Well, you're dealing with OS maps and like all this really heavy data, you know, kind of like the, the process of producing a map that's got outlines was just, you know, it's such heavy, yeah, such heavy data when I was trying to print them out. <laughs> I do love the, um, the physicality of a map on the wall yeah. and, um, and the pins and the bits of wall or whatever it is that connect all those lines with the centre. I, I yeah. do appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's good. it's kind of just good to see and just you know when I'm on the phone was in fact was on the phone to I, I was doing a podcast uh, a couple of days ago um, with Roger Wu, so he was uh, an ex uh, RIBA Asia Council member, so I was talking to him about the RIBA Council elections. And, um, you know, we're on the phone and um, we kind of just Google, Google Matt Earth where he was. And that was just amazing. Yeah. It's just really nice to kind of see. Um, I mean, that is one thing that kind of lockdown's done for us is kind of brought us closer together. Yeah. 
I do like that. And I, I was thinking of that actually this morning and yesterday teaching because um, yesterday when I was teaching a student in Bulgaria, he was sitting on his tractor looking after the goats in a field while studying critical thinking for business at the University of Wales. And I was thinking what a great sort of um, spatial and sort of intellectual and academic sort of frisson was there with, you know, the on one hand, the, the rolling fields of this part of Bulgaria and the roving sheep and goats. And on the other hand, you know, the conception of the University of Wales where he's enrolled as being this kind of centre of culture to learn about business in the Western world and everything is quite a nice um, sort of um, paradox, I guess, between, you know, how people are studying in different places. And then he was having to speak to his group members on the mobile phone in order to have a Teams breakout room mm. uh, with other students, some in. So one, one was driving a mini cab somewhere near Slough, another one was, you know, in a sweet shop in North London at a Jewish sweet shop or something. And so there, there was this great sort of um, dislocation of people um, as part of university classroom mm. nowadays. Mm. Um, and, and actually, it, it also reminded me of, a, of an experience when I was traveling in India and I'd met this camel herder in India and he'd said to me, Oh, are you from are you from London? Do you know anyone at Oxford University? Because I have a, a degree in comparative literature from Oxford University, and I'm just looking to reconnect to do some future studies there. And this was a, a guy with a bunch of camels in Rajasthan, and uh, and I guess the sort of yeah, people are so many people come to UK for these sort of exported uh, education, and then they return to some other place. Um, oh. Yes, it's a strange world. I guess I, I even experienced that somewhat from my studies in Perth. That I had uh, people who I learned from who had studied in London or in the UK. Did um, you say you went to Mongolia? That's right. So, we, yeah, after I'd been working at Reba, um, I yes. also got involved in this project where um, I was supporting students who were doing uh, projects abroad including mm. for the tsunami and other things. And then the, the agency volunteer, uh, voluntary service overseas, VSO, which is a very established um, overseas volunteering organization, was recruiting for an architecture teacher in Mongolia. Yeah. And um, I couldn't find anyone among the students in the UK who was suitable. So yeah. I had to go there myself. Right. And uh, it happened that I was quite interested in Mongolia because I had done my master's degree on nomadic architecture. Right. And I'd already studied the Mongolian yurts as a, an example of nomadic architecture, of sort of non-European nomadic architecture. Yes. So, so I, was, I was there for nearly two years as part of a um, capacity building project yeah. in an architecture school. Um, so Mongolia became independent in 1992 and then it's had this sort of rapid urban uh, development and as part of that there's been um, springing up some architecture schools mm. um, and one of those needed uh, someone to help the staff to develop. So I guess that was one of my first experiences with coaching and mentoring as well was 
working with Mongolian architecture teachers. So where, and whereabouts in Mongolia was that? I'm, I'm well, just... I'm glad you asked that. So the, the capital of, of Mongolia is Ulaanbaatar. Yeah. It's the loosely translated the Red Hero. It's a Russian name for the center. It's the modern center rather than the kind of spiritual center, which is where the monastery was. Yeah. And that, that was developed mainly in the modern era. And that center has a, a peri-urban area, which is a bit like a suburban area, but it's it's peri-urban rather than suburban because it, it's kind of a an un, unplanned settlement that surrounds the capital. So if I was looking, I'm going to go on to Google. So mm. what should I type in? Yeah, so you could type in uh, West Western... U-L-A-A-N. Western. U-L. A-A-N. Yep. B-A-A. B-A-A. T-A-R. T-A-R. Yeah, that's the, the city is Ulaanbaatar, but then the west of Ulaanbaatar is the part, um, okay, we're zooming out and zooming back in. Oh, I'm heading. Uh, it's come up with the best, best western, western hotel. <laughs> Okay, that's fair enough. So what you're seeing there is the kind of, uh, let's say, the traditional formal architectural centre from the 20th century. Yeah. And then surrounding this core is a huge pancake of um, what they call gear districts or unplanned settlements, like kind of like um, uh, what you see in Latin America as... Um, sort of favelas or encampments of, of tents. Maybe if you zoom out a little bit more, you'll see at the edges, you've got a tie, a, like a very fine grained uh, sprawling areas of um, white belts. Yeah. yeah, all those ones outside the, the kind of geometric edge of the, of the city. Yeah, there we go. So these things called Khoru are districts of, um, of, of yurts. So all those there, you've got some oh, formal buildings, but many yeah. yurts, which are the circular figures there, oh, like little wow. spaceships. Yeah. That's so this quite looks like there's quite a bit of infrastructure there. Yeah. So the the um, the infrastructure is the roads, the unsealed roads, mm. and then there are um, there are wells uh, for collecting water every few blocks. Yeah. But there's no piped water. Right. And and there is no electricity other than uh, hookups, which come from sort of informally arranged electricity distribution systems. Wow. Um, so it's 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 different to a suburb in the sense that it is that it lacks uh, sewage or electricity infrastructure. It's it's a kind of temporary encampment. Uh, but it looks quite, as you say, it looks quite structured. It does so look a series quite... of s small yeah. compounds. Um, so each Mongolian uh, has a has a sort of a legal right to claim a compound, a little bit like a mining claim. Yeah. And these just evolved once the capital was built um, at the beginning of the 20th century. These um, little encampments just started to mushroom right around the centre of the formal city Hold uh, on. as I'm, a kind of informal. Got a bit of a street view on this main road that looks like oh, it yeah. splits. 
the um, okay. industrial to these encampments That's on the right left. Here. You can see a lot of modern vehicles, but also some kind of agricultural vehicles. Yeah. And nowadays, you don't see as many people with um, horses and carts like you did yeah. 10 years ago when I was there. Um, and the roads are, there are more sealed roads than there used to be. And what, um, what's the temperature like over there? Yeah, really good question. So <laughs> in, in summer, around 40 Celsius. And yeah. in winter, about minus 40 Celsius. So, wow. Very cold in winter. Um, so it's what we call an extreme continental climate because it's a long way from the ocean. The, mm. the weather patterns are very stable and it tends to stay the same temperature. It doesn't change very rapidly. You don't really get weather systems. Um, it tends to be quite dry. Um, mm. There's not a lot of uh, rainfall. Uh, the rivers are mostly dry. And, and how, do they, how do they deal with the extreme temperatures in the, in the yurts? Yeah, so these little yurts have um, central heating in the, in the crudest sense. They have um, oil or coal heaters mm. uh, in the center of the circular plan form. Yeah. And everybody huddles around the, the, the heating in the center. And so these little stoves are also hearths in the sense that they are a focus for the families and their place of cooking and place of uh, focus for everything in family life and that's very sort of significant in the in the lifestyle in Mongolia but a lot of these small buildings outbuildings that have been built will also have some form of um, heating uh, being being rigged up electric or uh, maybe gas cylinder heating um, but that, that's much less efficient than the one that's in the traditional yurt. Mm. So a lot of those buildings are not really used in the extreme winter time. Mm -hmm. Well, I never thought I'd be looking at Mongolian yurts during a podcast. You, you did, yeah, you did well there. You just zoomed straight <laughs> in on it. That was incredible. Yeah, very, very adventurous. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could have done that. I did, I did fly over Mongolia. Yeah. Um, about six months before I went there. Yeah. Um, and I was actually on an RIBA trip to Seoul in Korea for a validation at the Korean University of Arts. Yes. And I flew over Ulaanbaatar and I thought, oh my goodness, am I really going to go down there? And it was just like a desert for so many hours. And then there's a tiny speck. And then I kept flying and I got to Seoul. I mean, Seoul's a long way from Europe anyway. But, mm. And I think only because I come from a fairly remote place anyway, I was able to prepare myself. Perth is meant to be the second most isolated city in the world after Ulaanbaatar. So right. there's something in common there. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think I need to draw this to a close. <laughs> Not quite <laughs> sure how we're going to tie up those loose ends. So uh, we're titling this piece... Um, the architect's coach so if you want to get in touch with uh, Gregory how would how would someone find you um, well I'm on LinkedIn and I have a an about me forward slash Gregory Cowan um, I, you can find me at uh, Con constructive together every Monday morning with Lisa on <laughs> uh, clubhouse and I'm running some other rooms as well um, 
So yeah, I, I hope um, you can, Lisa will put a link maybe to my LinkedIn or something like that. Or to oh, do you want to ping that, ping that over to um, me and yeah, I'll pop sure, it into your that. bio. Okay, well, thank you very much, Greg, Gregory, for thank coming on. It's, <laughs> that was really fun. <laughs> well, it, it just shows you, Lisa, that, um, that you trust me enough to allow you to go into a completely other space. <laughs> because you, you navigated, you came right outside your comfort zone and dived straight into a completely foreign environment. So I think that's a really good sign. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, well, if everyone's enjoyed listening, uh, which I'm sure they have, please do subscribe to Architecture in the Den. Um, if you want to contact me, you can find me on the Pride Road Franchise website. So that's prideroadfranchise.co.uk or email me lisa at prideroad.co.uk if you want to come on as a guest. So thanks, Greg. Thank and you, I'll Lisa. I'll see you, well, I'll hear you on Monday. <laughs> yes, I'm looking forward to that. Together.